You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. I'm Greg Arthur. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm happy to see all of you here today. You know, it's kind of amazing to me that anyone on a holiday weekend, like week like this, would get all dressed up as fine as you all look today and go out in the damp and the cold to church, no less. Yep, glad you're all here. It's New Year's Eve, and I want to tell you about a time when I was a teenager and I was driving under the influence. I'm not saying anything about what happens tonight. This is not going to be some morality sermon about New Year's Eve when people drink like fish and drive like maniacs. It's not going to be that at all. It's that my one great experience of drinking and driving, which happened when I was a wee little lad of 17 in the beautiful little hamlet of Las Cruces, New Mexico, it's illustrative of the phrase, under the influence, which is the title of today's talk, under the influence. So I wasn't much of a drinker, and I'm still not because of that night. But that night, my friends and I who had gone up to Santa Fe to the nerd fest that was called Boys and Girls State. We had a reunion party somewhere south of town, and there I decided to drink a lot of beer, so I did. And then when I was headed home across Las Cruces, which back then was pretty small, it was only about half the size of San Leandro, I crossed the two main streets that head east and west. Two parallel one-way streets called Loman and Amador. No one is confused about these two streets because they're the only fast ways to get across town east and west. No one is confused. It's like how you know where the bathroom is in the middle of the night. You never end up in the yard looking for the bathroom. It's instinct. That's how those two streets are. Amador heads one way west and Loman heads one way east. Even before you learn how to drive, If you're from Las Cruces, you know these two big four-lane streets like the back of your hand, unless you're under the influence. So I needed to head up east toward my parents' house, and I turned with full confidence, not up Loman, but up Amador, headed the wrong way up a one-way street. Speed limit is 35, which is 40, you know, and so I drove the wrong way for a few blocks. Fortunately, Las Cruces is a sleepy little hamlet town, and it was late at night, and there were no cars on the road, and all the police were asleep snug in their beds. And after a minute or two, it hits me. To my horror, it hits me that I've been driving the wrong way up a one-way street. So I pull off to a side street and stop and come to my senses, and I hear what to this day I know was the Lord speaking to me before I was even a believer, saying, hey, life's hard enough without making yourself stupid. That's what the Lord said to me right in my mind. And that night, plus one other super gross-out night of beer, cured me of the desire to drink, a condition that has remained my way to this day. However, that's not the point of this story. Like I said, I'm not making some backhanded comment about tonight, New Year's Eve, when people, as Pastor Paul Shepard says on the radio, not you, but people you know, (laughs) drink like fish, and drive like maniacs. This isn't about drinking. No, the point of the story is about being under the influence. 
For what has struck me and what I'd like to bring out today are the ways that we can live as Christian, saved by grace through faith, Holy Spirit-led lives, and yet be under the influence of another spirit, namely the devil. Not possessed, not taken captive, but under the influence. In other words, we can as Christians let another spirit, namely the devil, into our lives and then drive through life under the influence of the devil, headed the wrong way up a one-way street. All right. We're going to look at uh, first what it means to be under the influence of the devil. All this is in your notes. You don't have to write one thing down, honestly. So then we'll look at three scriptures that describe how and when that can happen. And finally, we'll end with what the Lord does to make us clean and sober. So would you pray with me, please? My Lord, help us. Help us in everything. Give us unstopped ears to hear what you have to say. And clear minds to comprehend what you mean. And pure hearts to obey your perfect, perfect way. So that we can live all our days happy in you, O Lord, no longer under the influence. Amen. Now, the Bible describes being under the influence of a different spirit like this. In a verse that's written to believers about drunkenness. It says, And do not be drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this sermon is not about drinking wine. But there's a reason why alcoholic beverages are called spirits. For drunkenness, any drunkenness is living under the influence of another spirit. When drunk, you're not you. You think things you would never think when sober. You say things you would never say when sober. You do things you would never do when sober. You drive up the wrong way street which you would never do when you're sober. When drunk, you're not you. You're living under the influence of another spirit. And that's why the Bible has just tons to say about living sober-minded lives. This verse goes on to say that drunkenness is dissipation, which means wasteful living. Like the prodigal son who, quote, wasted his possessions with prodigal living. In fact, the word dissipation and the word prodigal living are the same Greek word. There's a reason why intoxication is called wasted. It's dissipation. It's wasted. So while we're not talking about alcohol per se today, or cannabis, or opioids, or any other intoxicant, a general biblical principle does apply here. And it's this. Do not be under the influence of any different spirit, for that is a waste of yourself and of you. But instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. For when we are saved, our old sinful spirit, which was against God, died. And we were born again with a new spirit, willing and able to submit to God, willing and able to follow Jesus, willing and able to obey his word, willing and able to forgive and be humble and to find our satisfaction in Christ, willing and able to have the darkest corners, even where the monsters be, filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. For when we are saved, God remakes us as willing and able in our spirit to obey him, unless we're under the influence of another spirit. Okay, we're going to look at three different states of mind (laughs) that the scriptures say leave Christians vulnerable to be under the influence of the devil. Not possessed, not captured, but under the influence. And these are, number one, unresolved anger. That's that big 
bottle of red wine right there. Being wise in our own eyes, number two, and number three, anxious comparisons, envy. And it is when we are in a vulnerable state that the devil exploits us with lies about God and about ourselves, about sin and the world, lies that justify sin, lies that convince us that the only way to survive in this mean old world is to look out for number one, lies that say it's better to be angry than forgiving, critical than humble, sophisticated than satisfied, lies that keep us driving under the influence, the wrong way up a one-way street, swerving around oncoming traffic, until finally we crash head-on, taking down with us our passengers and other drivers and their passengers. For the devil is a liar, the father of lies, our adversary and enemy, who is against the Lord and bent upon our destruction, and being under his influence is a grievous place to be. Amen? But before we go on, let me say this. Whenever we find ourselves in life laboring under the influence... Our Lord is far greater than our adversary. Our Lord is Savior and Redeemer, Creator and Sustainer, Deliverer and Defender. Our Lord is for us and not against us. Our Lord has already defeated this adversary and has laid out for us how to live in this fallen world. To the Christian already saved by grace through faith, he says this, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Is that what it says up there? Yes, okay. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Maybe this is what we should preach to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves in the morning, you are of God, little children, and saying to ourselves at noonday, you have overcome them, the evil spirits at work against God because of he who is in you. And then declaring to ourselves at sundown, he who is in you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is greater than he who is in the world, the already defeated adversary. You are of God, little children, and he has overcome them and, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All right, let's say this together, would you, with me? He who is in you is, is greater than he who is in the world. All right. It's the preliminaries. Here's the first way to fall under the influence of our adversary, the devil, and it's unresolved anger. Here's the verse from Paul's letter to the saved believers in the Ephesian church. To the saints who are faithful in Christ, to the believers, the Christians, the already saved by grace through faith, to them, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not let the sun go down on your anger, thereby giving no opportunity to the devil. Or as some translations say, no place or foothold. Note the Bible doesn't say never be angry. Jesus got angry a few times, even once tipping over the money changer's table in the temple courtyard. And although he was slow to becoming angry, he did get angry. Thus, anger in itself is not evil, yes? It is, in fact, as Tim Keller has written, next one, 
That's him. Tim Keller has written it's an expression of love, actually, anger is. Keller explains it this way. If you never get angry about anything, you don't love anything. True love always gets angry. In its uncorrupted origin, anger is actually a form of love. It's just love moved to deal with the threat of someone or something you love. Hate's the opposite of love, not anger. There would be something wrong with us if we didn't get angry. So, the scriptures say, saints, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but don't let whatever sparks anger in you justify anything that is sin. Be angry, but don't use it to give yourself permission to seek revenge or gossip or slander someone's reputation or lash out or abuse or feed an addiction or lead someone astray. Be angry, but don't let whatever grievous thing that has happened to you be your excuse for your own, and it's as the scriptures say, your own sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, don't be like Draymond <laughs> and start clocking people upside the head or choking people or stomping people or punching people because some little thing they said that made you mad. The scripture goes on to say with greater seriousness, yes, there, that's the point. Saints, be angry, but don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's not just not letting anger justify sin, but we're warned not to hold on to anger, for that will give opportunity to the devil to do what he does, which is lie to us. And the longer we hold on to the anger, the better the lies sound. And then the anger begins to poison our souls with resentment and bitterness, and then settle in as depression. For anger held on to, even righteous anger, held on to as a consuming fire. As the grievous things that have happened to us and the resulting hurt are thought about and rethought about and rethought about, becoming the preoccupation of our lives. We've all known people who can't seem to move past their anger, yes? We've all known people who have held on to anger for years since a child and thought about it every day and relived it for months and for years and decades, even lifetimes, and even passed it on to the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We all know that my mom was that. It was passed down from my grandfather to my mom, and she lived all her days angry. Through unresolved anger, the lies of the devil find place and take root. And then comes the talk. He didn't respect you. She doesn't love you. They didn't protect you. No one appreciates you. And that's followed by the accusations. It's because you're worthless. It's because you're pathetic. It's all the fault. It's all their fault you're the way you are. If only church people really cared. You know you're kind of a fake Christian. Over the years, that talk and the accusations, they begin to coalesce into a worldview through which everything is experienced. And so many of us, because of un unresolved anger, go through life feeling a constant sense of condemnation or abandonment or rejection or pessimism or dread. 
eventually hearing the devil say things like, where is your God? Why would he care about you? Has he condemned you instead like you deserve or rejected you like everybody else or abandoned you to the wolves? For the devil is the accuser of the brethren who twists truth to divide and destroy and quench our love for the God who loves us. And just like driving under the influence, when we're living under the fog of unresolved anger, we can't see reality clearly or clearly hear God anymore or make right decisions. It's a fog. You can't, can't see. Our priorities are not God's. Our preoccupation is not with God and his word, but with the grievous things that happen to us and the resulting hurt. Our minds are not our own, for we have fallen under the influence of another spirit, namely the devil. We've turned up Amador, heading the wrong way up a one-way street, and destruction's just a block away unless we come to our senses. So, in order to bring us to our senses, the Lord, through this scripture, then instructs us to do something. He says, put away all anger, like you might put a sock away in a drawer, saying, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Let yourself, allow yourself, lower your guard, drop your objections. With all sobriety on that day, put away all forms of anger, poisonous bitterness, burning wrath, cynical anger, riotous clamor, mean slander, and cold-hearted malice. The Lord here says to let yourself Put it all away. Let yourself. And then he says how to put it away, instructing us, as the verse goes on, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Here's where the rubber meets the road. How do we put away anger and thus no longer live under the influence of the devil? How do we move past anger? How do we stop being consumed by hurt? The Bible boils it all down to forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the way out. Resolve anger by forgiving others and thereby no longer give the devil place. Now, there are many questions and objections and misconceptions about what it means to forgive, and I'll get to that. But first, a story. Okay, now, many of you, I've told this, told this story many times, uh, you know, for, so all of you have heard it. What's one more time? Anyway, back in the day, when my uh, beautiful wife, Lori, was struggling with depression, I was pondering her plight. And I knew about all the grievous things that she had gone through when she was young, and I began to search the scriptures for all that the Lord has to say about depression. And while I was building out the garage, I was praying while I was swinging a hammer, praying to the Lord, and it came to my mind in prayer that depression and anger are two sides of the same coin, with depression being anger turned inward instead of outward. And that image was, in fact, in my mind. That's what the Lord put in my mind, a turning coin on its edge with depression on one side and anger on the other. And so I resolved to tell, I resolved to the Lord to tell Lori what I'm telling and saying to all of you today. I resolved to tell her that she can resolve her anger by forgiving as Christ has forgiven her. And the Lord said to me, you do it first. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, I'm not the one with the problem. <laughs> to which he said nothing. 
And then I said in my mind, all right, who should I? And before I could say, who, the Lord said, your dad. And I just groaned inside. And I said, but I'm not the one with depression. And besides, my dad and I, we're doing fine now. And he said nothing. So I began to pray to forgive my dad the way Jesus says to here in Mark. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespass. So for two months straight, I prayed incessantly, saying to the Lord, you've commanded me to forgive, and I agree. I want to, but I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't have the power to do it. You're going to have to do it for me. And I prayed that prayer over and over again for two straight months. And when I was driving to New Mexico for Christmas, I turned off the radio, and for two days, that's all I did. Prayed, no radio, two days in the car. You've told me to forgive, and I want to do it. I can't do it. You're going to have to do it for me, Lord. <clears throat> and then in a flash, while I was walking behind my parents on a snowy New Mexico trail, the Lord answered my prayer in my mind, saying, he too is a man just like you. And I knew what that meant that he was just as forgiven and just as beloved by God as me. And right then and there, I started to weep. And me, the Christian, who was already a forgiven man, was now a forgiving man. And I loved my dad for the first time, really, really loved him. Not needing him, but loving him. It was his power, not mine. It was God's power, not mine. It was proof that he who is in me is greater than he's in the world. And after that, it's just been a snap to forgive anyone else, even my mom, who was a hurricane of saying and doing very grievous things. And while I knew I was radically changed in heart, I vowed to the Lord not to tell anyone. And then nine months later, because of how different I was, no longer cynical about everything and everybody, with that kind of anger, that cynicism kind of anger, that superiority kind of anger, taken right out of me, a friend of mine blurted out, hey, Greg, you're different. You used to be Old Testament Greg, now you're New Testament Greg. <laughs> For I was no longer under the influence. I was set free. It was the most life-changing thing that has ever happened to me. All right, I have some final thoughts on forgiveness, the resolution of anger, and no longer being under the influence of the devil. First, First thought, God's forgiveness is just, which is strange because the reason why forgiveness is hard is it seems unjust. You're letting, the, you're letting the offender go free. You might remember how John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He saw Christ at that moment, and he saw that he was the once and for all perfect sacrificial lamb for the atonement of sins. Because of the infinite value of his son who is king forever, God accepts as justice Christ's voluntary death in our place forever, for every sin ever committed and that will ever be committed. Therefore, God's forgiveness is made just by Christ's death on the cross. For if God forgives... Who are we to withhold our forgiveness? If God says it's justice, who are we to cry out injustice? 
What do we know that God doesn't know? Who are we to find fault with God? Now, whether someone receives his forgiveness and whether we extend our forgiveness to others in return, that's another matter. But who are we to find fault with God who has made forgiveness just by Christ's death on the cross? All right, second point. God's forgiveness gives meaning to our sufferings. So, Lori had her own encounter with the Lord. I didn't tell her, this is what you got to do. The Lord worked on me. But Lori had her own encounter with the Lord. And that anger over the grievous things in her childhood had settled into depression by the time she was uh, in her 30s. So, she incessantly sought the Lord for years and learning his word and praying fervently and bringing all her complaints and all her doubts and all who loves her and forgives her. And then one day she had a life-changing experience in prayer as she poured out her complaint that when she was little, when she was tiny, she wasn't protected from an abuser by those who could have protected her. And in her distress, she said what was underneath all of that distress, crying out to the Lord, where were you? And the Lord then showed herself showed himself in her mind on the cross with his arms outstretched and said, I was here. (laughs) So she just wept, for she knew that God's forgiveness on the cross meant her suffering mattered to him. And then she also knew that this forgiveness was for the perpetrator as well and for everyone in the world, and that it is enough for the whole world. She knew that His forgiveness is life itself. All right, third point. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation. When we forgive as Christ forgives, we transfer our demand for justice to God. That's what we're doing. We tear up our writ of complaint against the other person, and instead we entrust justice to God. It's strictly an interaction between ourselves and the Lord just us. It's between me and God that he is is, uh, in response to what he says. And that interaction frees us from the consuming anger and from the influence of the devil. It could, but doesn't necessarily lead to reconciliation, for that involves the other party is not there in in that interaction. What if they're evil? What if they don't acknowledge the wrong they've done? What if they're not sorry? What if there's no reconciliation possible at all? Once I was at a prison giving, I wasn't in prison, I was going to the prison. (laughs) Once I was at a prison giving a sermon on forgiving fathers. And afterward, this huge man whose hands looked like baseball mitts with tattoos on his face came up to me, tears streaming down his face saying, help me. Help me forgive my dad. He's dead. Help me forgive my dad. He's dead. For he knew that he had to forgive his dead dad to be free, to be set free. So forgiveness wasn't, reconciliation is not possible there. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. Finally, here's a fourth point. Jesus is just emphatic that his forgiveness and our forgiveness 
are intertwined, that there cannot be one without the other. The Scriptures say our forgiveness of others is contingent on God's forgiveness of us, saying things like, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Our forgiveness is contingent on His forgiveness. But the Scriptures also say it the other way around, that God's forgiveness of us is contingent on our forgiveness of others. You might remember the story Jesus told a parable about a master who forgave a servant a massive debt of 10,000 talents. Now, I, I'm kind of mathy, so I figured out how much many dollars 10,000 talents is. It's $13 billion. But that servant then went out and roughed up a fellow servant for 100 denarii, which is $30,000. And the master said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave? And he tosses him in prison until he repays the debt, which, of course, he can never do. Then Jesus says what this parable means. He ends his parable with the teaching. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Yikes, honestly. Am I forgiven if I don't forgive? Am I still forgiven if I don't forgive? It kind of sounds like maybe. However, it's not maybe. God's forgiveness is certain, for he saves us when we first believe in him to forgive us. And if you haven't asked him in to your life to forgive you of your sins, you can and he will. But unless we go through our own pain of forgiving others, we can't grasp how costly his forgiveness is. And without that understanding, we can take his forgiveness for granted, like it was nothing or that it was deserved or expected, which, if that's the way we take it, it makes us functionally like we're unsaved, living our lives like that. To me, that's how it makes sense that God's forgiveness and our forgiveness are intertwined. All right, I'm pretty much going to be out of time here. So before we end, here's a second way, according to the Scriptures, that leaves us vulnerable to being under the influence of the devil, and that one is envy. From the Psalms, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked, wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil doing. This passage says comparisons with those who seem to be doing well in the world doing great, will spark an anger in us, a wrath. And when we are preoccupied with it, when we fret about it, when we fret about how someone is doing, how they're doing better than me, it leads to evil doing. I kind of want to know how King David, when he wrote this 3,000 years ago, knew about social media. <laughs> Honestly, comparisons with each other, fretting about it, leads to evil doing. It's perfect. Anyway, all right, here's a third way that according to the scriptures that can leave us vulnerable to being under the influence of the devil. And this one's about being wise in our own eyes. It's from the Proverbs. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In other words, being right in your own eyes is turning toward evil and not fearing the Lord. 
Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Okay. I started today talking about that time I found myself driving under the influence, headed the wrong way up a one-way street, and the Lord said in my mind after I came to my senses, hey, life's hard enough without making yourself stupid. And I said that that was illustrative of how we can find ourselves under the influence of the devil. Not possessed, not captured, but under the influence. When, as the scriptures say, we hold on to anger, or when, we, when we're wise in our own eyes, or when we fill our minds with anxious comparisons of ourselves with the world. But that's just the story that we find ourselves in. The real story is not about being under the influence of the devil but instead about being in the hands of our Savior who has saved us. He made us clean through his forgiveness on the cross. And then he makes us sober as he instructs us and changes us and fills us with his Holy Spirit. Um, maybe I should have entitled this talk Clean and Sober instead of Under the Influence. For the way out of being under the influence isn't just a one-time coming to our senses, but it's rather a long campaign of first being made clean and then becoming sober, becoming more and more able to live life clearly, see, live life clearly seeing reality, hearing God clearly, making right decisions in the fullness of joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I just want to end with two verses that tell us how to cooperate with God and his transforming work to make us clean and sober. And this is the first one, James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil by forgiving as Christ has forgiven you, by praying incessantly for the Lord's help. Um, or as Billy Graham said famously, when Satan knocks, sending Christ to the door. Resist, and he will flee from you. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then finally, the last verse is Philippians 4.8. Instead of being preoccupied with what the devil wants us to be preoccupied with, his lies, the things that happened to us in the past, and how much hurt we feel all the time, instead of letting that be our preoccupation, um, he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell, preoccupy your mind on these things. Because it turns out that whatever you preoccupy your mind wins. All right, would you pray with me, please? My Lord, please help us in everything. Uh, we are not able to stand against the devil. We can resist him, Lord, in your power. We're not smart enough to outcraft him. We're not able to know what it takes to, to avoid all the things that the devil wants to do, who accuses us, who desires our destruction. My Lord, help us in everything. Help us to be rid of anger to put it away like a sock in a drawer. Help us to not be wise in our own eyes, but humble before you. 
and help us to not fret about how things are going in the world, but rather find our full satisfaction in you all the time. Help us, Lord Jesus, in everything. We call out to you to help us. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.